Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week's episode we're going to be talking about nuclear fusion in the episode entitled Darwin and the Sun. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, the book that first set out what has developed into the modern theory of evolution. As discoveries go, well, not for nothing have people called this the greatest idea that a person ever had. He was famously inspired by a trip to the Galapagos Islands, where he observed a dozen different species of finches on each of the individual islands. Perhaps less famously, though, he was influenced by Malthus as well. Loyal listeners will remember that we've discussed a couple of times now the question of overpopulation and the Malthusian catastrophe, where human demands on the Earth outstrip the availability of resources, as part of our series of episodes on the apocalypse. The bleak Malthusian view of the world, published over a decade before Darwin was born, was influential for Darwin when he was trying to figure out just why it was that so many different species seemed to exist, to appear and disappear, and to change. At this time, he already had an idea that, quote, there is a force like a hundred thousand wedges trying to force every kind of structure into gaps of nature, or thrusting out the weaker ones. It was then that he happened to read Malthus and noted, quote, In October 1838, that is 15 months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I happened to read for amusement Malthus on population, and, being well prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence, which everywhere goes on, from long-continued observation of the habits of animals and plants, it at once struck me that under these circumstances favourable variations would tend to be preserved, and unfavourable ones to be destroyed. The result of this would be the formation of new species. Here, then, at last, I had a theory by which to work. The genius of this idea is probably that it's so simple. If there is a population that varies a lot, like animals and plants, and a selection process, the ability to survive and then reproduce based on your survival, then you would expect those with favourable characteristics to be selected over time. Then, if they pass on their characteristics to new generations, the population will gradually change to have these favourable characteristics. This doesn't just apply to biology as a process. Even now, this process is being used by those in the evolutionary AI field to generate better algorithms by tweaking parameters and selecting the ones that work. Those which successfully achieve the given task are allowed to reproduce, while the ones that fail are weeded out of the population. It's so simple a process as to seem almost obvious, yet so profound, because it can explain such a vast array of phenomena in nature that previously confounded thinkers and required an intelligent designer to explain. Before Darwin, the way that things were so adapted to their individual natures and homes and so forth, it didn't just need intelligent designers to explain it, it almost provided the main evidence that there was an intelligence creator. But this profound idea had profound consequences. Darwin was reluctant to do more than hint at it in his first book, but the obvious implication was that humans had themselves evolved, and perhaps from animal ancestry. The timescales required for evolution meant that the Earth must be hundreds of millions of years old at least. Now, it was not impossible to reconcile the theory of evolution with the existence of a creator who set it all in motion. That was possibly the way that Darwin felt, although he described himself as agnostic towards the end of his life. But it was certainly impossible to reconcile the idea that humans had evolved, over this kind of timescale, with the literal reading of Genesis, where Earth is created in a week in 4004 BC or so, and God painstakingly designs every single species that exists, and, I guess, chucks some dinosaur skeletons in the ground to test our faith. More than the religious dogma that evolution contradicted, though, it was another great blow to our traditional view of ourselves. 
Copernicus and others had pointed out that the Earth wasn't at the centre of the universe. Now, Darwin was saying that the human species wasn't particularly special. It was produced by the same process that produced every other species. We just happen to be slightly smarter, or at least think we're slightly smarter. Now think about what this means in terms of the context of how humans were viewed. We'd gone in a few centuries from being created in the image of the divine god, the universe revolving around us, created for us, to being smart apes that occupy an evolutionary niche on a not particularly special planet in an obscure corner of a vast universe. When you look at it like that, it's bound to be a blow to the ego. These philosophical consequences upset and disturbed Darwin too. He held off from publishing the work for years, and in letters at the time of publication, he begged friends to see if there wasn't merit in his theory, and warned them that they might not like it. And of course, because this is science we're talking about, people immediately came in to try and take him down, pick apart his idea, find the flaws, contradict it. And this is where the title of this episode comes in, because one of the scientists who tried to contradict Darwin's theory of evolution presented a little paradox that made evolution seem impossible. It was a question that has occurred to every curious child. Why does the sun shine? It wasn't a child trying to take Darwin down, though, but Lord Kelvin. He was most famous for his contributions to thermodynamics, which is why they named the scale of absolute temperature after him, and loyal listeners will recall that we talked about his formulation for the second law of thermodynamics in that episode. So it's natural that he took a thermodynamic approach to the problem of why the sun shone, for which you need to answer, well, where does the energy come from? First, Kelvin dismissed the possibility that the sun might be burning some kind of fuel. No known fuel would provide you with that amount of energy for that long before burning out. If the sun was made of something burning, then its fuel must contain thousands of times more energy than anything known on Earth. Then he considered that perhaps the sun's fuel was being continually replenished by meteorites. After all, thermodynamically the sun is not a closed system, things presumably could crash into it and perhaps refuel it over time. But this quickly became untenable too, there just wasn't enough matter being absorbed by the sun to refuel it on this scale. So Kelvin was left with a simple conclusion. If the sun wasn't being continually replenished by burning some fuel, then when the sun formed, it must have had a lot of energy, and it was now radiating that energy away into space and cooling down. But where did that original energy come from? Well, Kelvin thought that the most likely explanation would be that the energy that the sun radiated came from a gravitational collapse. In many ways, you can see why he thought this. Most of the astrophysical things we see are sculpted by gravity, like the orbits of the planets and even the galaxies, and it seems to be the dominant force on those length scales. And we know, actually, in reality, that a lot of the energy that initially ignites fusion in suns comes from gravitational collapse. So the idea was that the sun was just a static ball, and that it was continually radiating away the energy that came from its original collapse. As the stuff that formed the sun collapsed into a star, the gravitational potential energy was converted into kinetic energy, and this was then radiated away as heat. Now, since you can actually calculate how much gravitational energy is released when a sphere forms, and you can calculate the mass of the sun based on the orbits of the planets, these are both quite standard physics calculations, Kelvin could tell you how much energy the sun should have from its initial collapse. 
Since the sun was clearly radiating away its energy at an astonishing rate, Kelvin reasoned that it must be cooling down. Based on distance measurements to the sun, and its brightness, Kelvin could obtain estimates for how hot the sun had been when it first formed, and, using its current temperature, how long it had been cooling down for. So using his 19th century thermodynamics, he did so, and he came up with an estimate for the sun's lifetime based on this, based on the idea that it was just radiating away its energy from some initial heat when it collapsed, and was cooling down to nothing. His estimate was between 10 and 100 million years, with a best guess of 32 million years. Let's just take a second to appreciate that Kelvin's theory is also rather doomy. The sun is constantly cooling down, burning through its reserves of energy. In this model, all the matter in the universe eventually clumps together into stars, which then radiate away that energy into the universe, until everything is lukewarm soup and lukewarm stars. But this theory spelled doom for Darwin. Kelvin reasoned that probably the sun was a similar age to the Earth, and even if they somehow didn't form together, life is hardly going to flourish with no sun. This meant that there had only been a few tens of millions of years during which evolution could possibly have taken place, even if life on Earth formed immediately. And that simply wasn't enough time for Darwin's theory to be right. You get a sense of the age-old animosity between physicists and biologists here. There's nothing worse than a physicist who's just done a back-of-the-envelope calculation trying to disprove your theory that you've worked on for ages. One can almost hear Kelvin saying, Yes, Charles, that's a very cute theory, but you figured out by looking at the finches, and it's a lovely story for your book, but it contradicts the laws of thermodynamics. You can't break the laws of physics now, so just pipe down and stay in the corner. Now, the fact that geologists had also estimated the Earth to be at least hundreds of millions of years old, based on how quickly rocks were eroding, didn't seem to phase Kelvin either. Darwin had considered this to be such an important aspect of his theory that he had done his own geological studies, demonstrating that the amount of time required to form a particular valley in England must have been at least 300 million years. This provided an alternate line of confirmation for his theory that humans and the rest of species on Earth had in fact had enough time to evolve. But Kelvin thought that perhaps catastrophic floods could have caused much faster erosion. Besides, what would the people who actually studied the Earth know about the Earth? He was a physicist. Kelvin was even more smug when he was able to turn the thermodynamic arguments against the Earth. It was known at the time that the Earth is filled with molten rock. Well, by the same logic, presumably it was a ball of molten rock that had gradually begun to cool down. By considering how long that cooling would take, he was able to get another estimate of the age of the Earth, and this was, again, tens of millions rather than hundreds of millions of years. So both of them contradicted a literalist reading of Genesis and adding up of the ages in the Bible, but Kelvin thought that his theory meant that there was something not quite right about Darwin's theory of evolution. We now know, though, that Kelvin's calculations didn't include everything. Those truly devoted listeners who remember the very first episodes of this show about stellar formation will remember this idea about gravitational potential energy from the collapse heating up a star. This is what happens when protostars, those newly born stars that are really just masses of gas falling and spiralling inwards, getting hot and heavy, are formed. And we also know that many stars are just endlessly cooling, radiating energy away into space and getting dimmer. These are white dwarf stars where fusion has already stopped. But we mark the moment that a star is truly born, when a star truly becomes a star, when it gets an additional source of energy, beyond just the gravitational potential from that infalling material. 
A star is born when that energy gets hot enough, and the gravitational pressure is big enough, to ignite nuclear fusion in the heart of the star. This was the mysterious fuel that Kelvin couldn't quite put his finger on. The energy came from nuclear forces, the extraordinary amounts of energy that can be liberated when nuclei rearrange themselves, far greater than any chemical reaction that Kelvin was familiar with. We know now that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old, plenty of time for evolution to develop the vast array of species we see around us, and survive a few mass extinctions in a boring billion years along the way. Darwin and Kelvin are both dead, but they're both famous in the annals of scientific history for different reasons, so I suppose no harm, no foul. Yet there was now a new and tantalising prospect to think about. Just imagine the field of radiation and nuclear physics developing today. Within a few decades, you go from having no knowledge of radioactivity, no one having any conception that the atom had a nucleus, and the theory of atoms itself still controversial, to realising that the mysterious forces that bind the nucleus hold almost limitless energy, lighting up the universe. Imagine the dreams we'd have if such a discovery was made today. It would be like dark energy and dark matter being discovered all rolled into one. Shifting nuclei into that region of stability, where the binding energy increases when you fuse nuclei together. If there was enough energy to light up the stars and perhaps the night sky across countless light years, sending twinkling signals into the void, why not harness that energy on Earth? By the 1920s, it had become clear that Kelvin's argument was wrong. The sun must be drawing on some energy source rather than gradually smouldering to nothing. Arthur Eddington, the man behind the experimental expedition that confirmed Einstein's theory of general relativity, is generally credited with being the first one to declare that nuclear energy was powering the sun. It would fall to Betha and other scientists to work out precisely how it worked, the exact nuclear fusion reactions that were occurring, and hence to estimate things like the stellar lifetime and talk about the various phases of nuclear synthesis, the creation of all the elements around us. For more on this, of course, head back to our first ever episodes, Hot and Heavy. I'm going to quote Eddington, however. The whole speech is great. You can find it all online. I did at Andrew Hamilton's homepage at the University of Colorado. This talk is called The Internal Constitution of Stars, and it's a pretty amazing snapshot of the state of stellar physics in 1920. First off, Eddington talks by summarising the state of stellar physics in 1920 and the observational science that they had of stars so far. Then he talks about Kelvin's predictions and why they don't make sense. He says, quote, This study of the radiation and internal conditions of a star brings forward very pressingly a problem often debated in this section. What is the source of the heat which the sun and stars are continually squandering? The answer given is almost unanimous, that it is obtained from the gravitational energy converted as the star steadily contracts. But almost as unanimously, this answer is ignored in its practical consequences. Lord Kelvin showed that this hypothesis, due to Helmholtz, necessarily dates the birth of the Sun at around 20 million years ago, and he made strenuous efforts to induce geologists and biologists to accommodate their demands to this timescale. I do not think they proved altogether tractable. But it is among his own colleagues, physicists and astronomers, that the most outrageous violations of this limit have prevailed. I need only refer to Sir George Darwin's theory of the Earth-Moon system, to the present Lord Raleigh's determination of the age of terrestrial rocks from occluded helium, and to all modern discussions of the statistical equilibrium of the stellar system. 
No one seems to have any hesitation if it suits him in carrying back the history of the Earth long before the supposed data formation of the solar system. And in some cases, at least, this appears to be justified by experimental evidence which is difficult to dispute. Lord Kelvin's date of the creation of the Sun is treated with no more respect than Archbishop Usher's. So here, Eddington finally takes the side of the other scientists, biologists and geologists by pointing out the hypocrisy of the physicists. They were happy to claim that the stars were continually contracting, but also to contradict themselves by not really dealing with the age limit that this would imply. But you have to remember, this is 1920. Einstein had already published Special Relativity, and people accept that light has a finite speed. So this means that they know that when you're looking at faraway stars, they're actually looking back in time. The reason is simple. If light takes 20,000 years to get to you, the object being 20,000 light years away, then you're seeing light that was emitted from the object, and hence the state of the object, 20,000 years ago. Whenever you look anywhere, you're looking at the past, by some measure of time. You can never see the world as it is now. And the further you look, the further back into the past you see. The present moment for you, then, is defined by all the events in your past light cone, the region of space-time that can influence you. But this is all for the special relativity episodes, really. Now, usually this effect is small, but with astronomical distances, it becomes important. Eddington pointed out that we can look at arrangements of stars called globular clusters at various different distances, and hence at various different times. If stars are being fueled by constantly contracting, you'd have to imagine that further away clusters would have stars that were bigger on average because they've had less time to contract. Yet there didn't seem to be much difference in these clusters. There are also stars called Cepheid variables, and they're famous because they regularly pulsate. They get brighter and then darker again, which you can use to keep track of time. Eddington pointed out that the period of this pulsation, the amount of time between pulsations, should change if the star was constantly contracting as it burned up all of its gravitational energy. But one particular star had been observed since 1785, and its period had barely decreased at all, by hundreds of times less than it should have done. So this was another nail in the coffin of the idea that these stars were contracting to get their energy. So finally, after pointing out all of these different contradicting evidence, Eddington comes on to discuss what the actual source of the stellar energy is. He knows about E equals mc squared, the equivalence of mass and energy. It's also known at this point that helium is slightly lighter than four hydrogen atoms, which is what they thought helium was made of at this point. This is how you can obtain energy from nuclear fusion. When the constituent parts combine, they're lighter than the sum of the parts, and the difference in mass is the energy released. E equals change in mass mc squared. Eddington can then do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, working out how much energy might be released if the sun is made of fusing hydrogen, and he gets a figure for the sun's lifetime that's far longer and far closer to what everyone suspects. But what I think is amazing is that in this, perhaps the first public statement talking about fusion as the energy source that powers stars, he was already discussing it as an ideal source of energy for the human species. Eddington straight away realised the immense potential of what this could mean. He said, quote, A star is drawing on some vast reservoir of energy by means unknown to us. This reservoir can scarcely be other than the subatomic energy, which, it is known, exists abundantly in all matter. We sometimes dream that man will one day learn how to release it and use it for his service. The store is well-nigh inexhaustible, if only it could be tapped. There is sufficient in the sun to maintain its output of heat for 15 billion years. 
The nucleus of the helium atom consists of four hydrogen atoms bound with two electrons. But Aston has further shown conclusively that the mass of the helium atom is less than the sum of the masses of the four hydrogen atoms which enter into it. There is a loss of mass in the synthesis, amounting to one part in 120, the atomic weight of hydrogen being 1.088, and that of helium just 4. We can therefore at once calculate the quantity of energy liberated when helium is made out of hydrogen. If 5% of a star's mass consists initially of hydrogen atoms, which are gradually being combined to form more complex elements, the total heat liberated will more than suffice for our demands, and we need look no further for the source of a star's energy. If indeed the subatomic energy in the stars is being freed to maintain the great furnaces, then it seems to bring a little nearer to fulfilment our dream of controlling this latent power for the well-being of the human race, or for its suicide. So you can see that Eddington's speech is really amazingly prescient. The first time people are starting to talk about fusion as the power source for the sun, he's already seeing this dichotomy with nuclear energy. Is it going to be the energy source that helps the human species ascend to new heights? or to destroy itself. Present in this speech already, then, is a dream that one day we might be able to harness the miraculous, limitless-seeming source of energy from the fusion together of light and nuclei. It's this idea that I really want to explore in this series of episodes. Could it really be true? It's going to take us through some incredible historical moments, some triumphs, some tragedies, and some scandals, from a century in the past to decades in the future. Because, of course, there's another famous quote about fusion, the idea is simple. You put the sun in a bottle. The only problem is building the bottle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. If you've enjoyed it, you can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. You can visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com. There you'll have several opportunities. You can donate to the show if you like what we're doing. You can buy some archive episodes that we've done in the past. There's a contact form there that you can use, and I read all of your emails and I'm very keen to hear about any comments, questions, concerns, ideas for new shows, ideas for people to interview, all that kind of thing, or just feedback if you like what we're doing or think it can be improved in any way. Next time we'll talk about the basic atomic physics that undergirds nuclear fusion. Until then, be kind to one another. Thank you.